This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's estimated that about 30 million people in the U.S. have sleep apnea, and most don't even know they have it. Only 20% of those with sleep apnea have been diagnosed with the condition, and it becomes more likely with advancing age and thought to be present in up to 80% of men over the age of 80. And with an increase in obesity in our population, the numbers of those with sleep apnea has increased dramatically. We're all aware of the daytime drowsiness that's so common in patients who are untreated, but are you aware of the other numerous and potentially serious complications that can also occur? In today's podcast, we'll discuss the common presenting symptoms of sleep apnea, but also how to diagnose the condition and all the potential consequences in those who remain untreated. Our guest is Dr. Tim Morgenthaler, a sleep specialist from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Tim, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you so much. You've chosen a topic that I spend a lot of my time dealing with, so I'm really happy to be able to come and and share with you. Well, it's an interesting topic, and certainly as a mostly outpatient physician, I see a lot of patients who have it or who are diagnosed with it. So it is an important topic. So speaking of that, when should we think about sleep apnea in patients we see in the outpatient setting? How might they present to us? What symptoms might they be describing? Yeah, so thanks. And it's a great question. And you know, you were already mentioning one of the things that I kind of just have to preface the answer to that with is the fact that it is an exceedingly common disorder. You were mentioning some of the statistics for the United States. I mean, globally, over 900 million people probably have obstructive sleep apnea. And that's if you include mild to severe. And if you include only moderate to severe, it's still probably something on the order of over 400 million people. So it's a very common disorder. So yeah, how do you decide to look for it? And what I generally do is I kind of think of things in two categories. One of them are not everyone, but many people have symptoms that would make you think about obstructive sleep apnea. And then the other one is what I would kind of put in the category of guilt by association. There are certain diseases that sleep apnea is just so prevalent in that you would be unwise not to at least think about it. Mm -hmm. So for the symptoms, I think everybody is familiar with kind of the classic symptoms of snoring is certainly a, a big one, excessive daytime sleepiness, Often a bed partner may observe uh, pauses in breathing. Patients may be aware of the fact that their sleep is interrupted. People can also complain about insomnia. And although there's many, many, many causes for insomnia, sleep apnea can contribute to that and sometimes can be a very treatable contributor to sleep apnea. On the guilt by association, we really start kind of getting into cardiovascular disorders. And, you know, we we can talk a lot more about that in detail, but cardiovascular disorders diabetes, obesity. Some people would say that, you know, if you have a patient who has hypertension and type 2 diabetes, they've got about an 80% chance of having obstructive sleep apnea. So you begin to kind of see the group that, you know, you would be likely to think about sleep apnea in. Mm -hmm. Well, when we see a patient and sleep apnea comes to mind, where do we start? What's the role of the overnight oximetry? It's a simple test, and I think we all have it available to us. You know, it's interesting. At Mayo Clinic, we we're very familiar and, and very often look at overnight oximetry across the United States and uh, certainly globally. 
That's not always uh, used as often as we have historically used it here. In terms of a, a screening tool, you know, I might surprise you. I would say it's actually not a great screening tool, and it's certainly not a diagnostic tool. So actually, there was a recent study looking at what is the accuracy of overnight oximetry in inpatient and outpatient populations. You know, if you really look at outpatients, it's neither very sensitive nor very specific. It's, we're talking about mid-60% range, particularly if you include milder sleep apnea. If you look at certain populations of patients, like patients with heart failure in the hospital and so forth, it's a fairly sensitive indicator that the patient has sleep disordered breathing, and, and many of those patients will have obstructive sleep apnea. You know, I suppose the thing to compare it to is, well, if we don't have that, you know, what else do we have? And we would really be talking about questionnaires or sort of screening tools. Maybe a common one that many people may be familiar with is the Stop Bang questionnaire, where it's an acronym, the, you know, the S being uh, snoring, the presence of problematic snoring, T being tired when you wake up, the O, observed apnea as if there happens to be a bed partner, the P is actually for pressure. They needed a letter in there that would make a nice acronym, so they used P, high blood pressure, B is elevated BMI greater than 35. The N is neck circumference greater than 16 inches on a, on a male. And then G being gender, because males tend to have this more. It was originally created in a perioperative setting and validated there. It's spread now. It's used very commonly in outpatients. And it also isn't great. You know, it has very sort of mediocre characteristics. I think more and more what the literature is kind of beginning to support is maybe a, a combined in terms of looking in that guilt by association group. But I think in people who are presenting with symptoms that suggest sleep apnea, you already know you're going to have to go and investigate with something deeper. Mm -hmm. I think I have found the most effective, highest probability of getting a correct diagnosis is talking to the bed partner. When they say their partner stops breathing, they snort, and then they start breathing again, that keeps them awake at least in my practice, it seems like a very high association with a positive diagnosis. Yeah. So what is required for a definitive diagnosis? What do the, uh, what do the patients need? Ideally, you're going to need some kind of a sleep study. Now, there, there are a variety of different kinds of sleep studies. The variety is increasing all, all the time. The most tried and true and kind of traditional is a polysomnogram, an attended polysomnogram, where the patient comes into a sleep laboratory or you know, an attended facility, and there is monitoring of their EEG, their EMG, the extraocular motions, the EOM, muscle tone, EKG, flow, breathing flow, movements of the chest and abdomen. And with that, you know, that's really how the diagnostic criteria have been originally developed. Obviously, in the past 20 to 25 years, there have been many new tests developed, hopefully to be more convenient, can be used at home, less involved. And we generally speaking, call those home sleep apnea tests. Sometimes people are, they want to call those a home sleep test, but most of them do not measure sleep. Most of them are actually trying to get at, are the apnea and hypopnea events frequent enough to say that this patient's going to meet the diagnostic criteria. So there are a variety of home sleep apnea test devices I would say that the majority fall into two categories, although there's new ones coming out very quickly now. One is sort of a stripped down version of a polysomnogram where it's going to measure airflow, oximetry, and chest and or abdominal movement so that you can differentiate you know, decreases in flow with or without associated decreases in oxygen saturation 
and are they trying to breathe? And so that helps you classify the events as either obstructive or maybe central events. The second device that's being used with increasing frequency is really a machine learning based device. It doesn't measure flow. It doesn't measure respiratory effort. It actually does measure oximetry, but then it has an indirect measure of sympathetic tone. It uses a device that's called peripheral arterial tonometry. There's several of them out there now that are FDA approved. These really have fairly extensive validation in patients who have more moderate to severe sleep apnea. They're not very sensitive. So those who might have more mild sleep apnea, that's not a great first test. Furthermore, if you really think the patient clinically has sleep apnea and you use one of the home sleep apnea tests, you really have to regard a negative test with a high degree of suspicion. You probably should go on for further testing. Mm -hmm. The home sleep studies have been a real help. The big bottleneck in getting patients diagnosed has been getting an available bed for the overnight sleep study in the clinic. So the home studies have been wonderful because we've been getting a lot more patients through. Occasionally when we get a patient who has a sleep study, it comes back as a result of positional sleep apnea. Now, does that have the same potential complications and does it require treatment? Yes, it, it does actually have similar complications, but I think we also just have to take a, a pause here. We have to step back and talk definitions. Would that be okay? Sure. This is a huge problem, I'll say, in, in sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. And everybody's pretty aware of what an apnea is. It should be a, almost a complete cessation of airflow. And we characteristically say for at least 10 seconds. Why 10 seconds? Well, probably in a normal respiring adult, that's probably three efforts. And they've kind of looked at what's outside the bounds of normal asymptomatic experience. And 10 seconds was kind of it. A hypopnea, really from the Greek hypo, lower and pneumo, air, lower air, lower flow, is a significant decrement in flow. And then there has been sort of an evolution in that definition, because initially it was a significant decrement in, in flow associated with either desaturation or arousal. And then it went through some additional work, partly due to some very large trials like the Sleep Heart Health, Health Study and insurance reimbursement. So for a while, it was uh, really categorized only as a, at least a 30% decrease in flow with a 4% desaturation, never mind whether they aroused. And the, the pendulum is kind of swinging back in, in many circles to say, well, we should maybe be more liberal. Obviously, the number of these events per hour is going to change quite a bit based on how you define the events. My reason for going into that is to say, you know, when you say positional sleep apnea, okay, where do I find the events, there's different definitions of positional sleep apnea. Not many people have exclusively sleep apnea on their back in sufficient numbers that they would really meet the criteria for having sleep apnea. So what you more often find are people who have perhaps mild sleep apnea and it's sub-definitions, less than five apneas and hypopneas per hour when they're on their side, but it's enough more on their back that they meet the overall criteria. The reason for that little uh, rabbit trail there is to say a lot of people with positional obstructive sleep apnea meet the definition for having mild obstructive sleep apnea. And whether mild obstructive sleep apnea has cardiovascular consequences, consequences on sleepiness, sleep symptoms, and so forth is pretty well established. They, uh, you know, all of those things can be true. We know that the degree of sleep impairment, sleepiness doesn't correlate very well with the number of these events per hour. 
we know that we have a lot of epidemiological data that indicates that actually even mild sleep apnea has some measurable attributable increased risks. I think where the whole issue comes into has more to do with treatment, frankly, than with uh, consequences. A longer answer than you probably wanted, but I think that's <laughs> representative of where the field is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into complications. I think the most commonly appreciated complication of sleep apnea is uh, daytime drowsiness, daytime sleepiness. So what are the potential sequela of this? Yes. Daytime sleepiness is uh, considered a cardinal symptom, but we do have to realize that you know sleepiness is in the eye of the beholder. As I've mentioned, the correlation of sleepiness with this apnea hypopnea index that we use is very poorly correlated actually with the AHI, the sleepiness and AHI. So it's not uncommon for me over a course of a day to see someone in a morning appointment that maybe they have apneas and hypopneas that occur 10 times per hour and they're really quite sleepy. And I might anticipate a couple months from now treated, they're feeling better. And I could have another individual whose AHI, apnea hypopnea index is 40. And they actually, I have a hard time convincing them that there's anything wrong. They feel that they're perfectly fine. This is a one of these situations where the diagnosis was pursued out of concern for their hypertension or their heart failure or a stroke or something, and they have very little in the way of symptoms. You know, the sleepiness is there, but it's not uniformly there. You know, other consequences are associations with sleep apnea, big time associations with hypertension. It is an independent risk factor for hypertension. Those of you who treat hypertension and go to the guidelines for hypertension, you've seen over the years that in someone, particularly if they have some hypertension that's resistant to therapy, you're encouraged to go investigate whether they might have obstructive sleep apnea or not. It's an independent risk factor for atrial fibrillation. It's a risk factor for stroke. It's a risk factor for heart failure. And then we've got other things that are kind of non-disease related, and that would be motor vehicle accidents. And these can be either the drowsy truck driver or it can be increased risk of accidents from uh, some mild cognitive dysfunction or slowed reaction times. The odds of work-related accidents in obstructive sleep apnea is nearly double. If they, it, it's you know, it, the odds ratios are like 2.2. Occupational driving is associated with an even higher effect size when they go look at that. So there are significant consequences in terms of accidents and diseases. And then I would just add one other aspect that perhaps many people are not aware of, and that is, you know, if you start thinking about those implications, there's actually huge costs to society of untreated sleep apnea. So sleep apnea adversely affects work performance, work processes, increased accidents rates. The greatest costs, though, associated with obstructive sleep apnea are lost workplace productivity. And some of the estimates are pretty close to $90 billion per year, increased healthcare utilization to the tune of $30 billion per year, motor vehicle collisions and accidents, $26 billion per year, and then the workplace accidents, $6 billion. So it it can have a huge economic consequence. You mentioned hypertension. I want to ask you a little bit about that. I have heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, so I want you to confirm it, that the hypertension that's associated with sleep apnea produces somewhat of a resistant hypertension such that using uh, pharmacologic treatment may not be as successful in treating a patient with hypertension associated with sleep apnea. Is that true? Yes. The mechanisms whereby obstructive sleep apnea may be associated with hypertension, 
the way I often explain this to patients, and sometimes we're having this conversation in the setting of looking at an overnight oximeter or something like that. But, you know, typically as we fall asleep, if we're unaffected by sleep apnea, you'll see what's called dipping. The blood pressure will gradually decline over the course of the night. Oftentimes, you'll see, uh, you know, an overall decrement in the mean heart rate over the course of the night. In people with obstructive sleep apnea, because of the recurrent arousals and let's face it, fight or flight to uh, kind of rescue yourself from being choked, there's actually, you know, measurable increases in sympathetic tone. And what you end up seeing when, you know, we don't routinely measure blood pressures, you know, in sleep studies, but in research studies where they use an arterial line or even a Swan-Gantz catheter, you'll see significant increases, certainly not dipping across the course of the night. So obstructive sleep apnea when untreated really contributes not only to just the overall prevalence of hypertension, but can make hypertension more resistant to treatment. And the association with stroke and um, MI, is it purely due to the hypoxia that's produced during the night, or is it more complex than that? So let's take ischemic heart disease. I won't do this complete justice, but I think you'll get some of the client, you know, some of the aspects from it. So first of all, it certainly is an independent risk factor for coronary artery disease. Odds ratio is something on the order of two to three times in, in some studies, those studies that produce those very high odds ratios are often clinic populations. So the kind of people that I see in my sleep center, if you look at more population-based study, still an increased attributable risk, more like a 10% increase in risk. And if you look actually then at, well, what factors are associated with that? You're absolutely right. Hypoxic burden is a much better marker for how much that risk is going to increase in these people. So some people have obstructive sleep apnea with very little time spent uh, in an abnormal oxygen saturation state, whereas others have a deeper desaturation. So hypoxia is a contributing risk factor, but there's also effects on endothelial health for sleep apnea. There's increased inflammation. There's increased effects on baroreceptor tone. There's increased heart rate variability. So all of these things can kind of accumulate between the inflammation, there's measurable increases in CRP, TNF-alpha, all these kind of inflammation factors, endothelial health factors, increased sympathetic tone factors, and even some of the intrathoracic swings in pressure associated with more severe sleep apnea. All of these can can contribute to those cardiovascular risks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Tim, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was reading and I came across an article on central sleep apnea and an association with uh, cardiac failure. How does central sleep apnea present clinically and should we be evaluating patients who have uh, documented congestive heart failure for central sleep apnea? Yeah, let's pick on that population. Patients with uh, significant congestive heart failure something between 60 and 80% of them are going to have some form of sleep apnea. And between the two of them, you'll actually see a fairly even distribution of central sleep apnea and obstructive sleep apnea in that population. That's in contrast to, you know, most of the people that you're seeing kind of come through an office or with sleep complaints, where maybe only 5% of the patients will have a significant central sleep apnea component. So in that enriched population, it's very common And that's one of the reasons why it is really important wherever possible to do an in-lab polysomnogram test of patients with that particular demographic, because the home sleep apnea tests are not as reliable in differentiating uh, between central and obstructive. And then kind of carrying that to the logical next step, why why look for it at all? 
well, what are you going to do about it? And so treatment of central sleep apnea is much more challenging and different, requires a different re approach than obstructive sleep apnea. So mm -hmm. the answer, I guess, to your question is yes, if you're seeing a patient who has you know, congestive heart failure, you should really be considering that the possibility of them having central sleep apnea is quite high. And I guess the other question you asked is what are the symptoms? They can have very similar symptoms because you know, just having central sleep apnea doesn't mean that you won't snore. It doesn't mean that you can't have some obstructive events. And they can have sleepiness, but characteristically, if you look at pop these two different populations, the people with central sleep apnea tend to be not quite as sleepy overall as the people with obstructive sleep apnea. And more of their complaints tend to be more bad sleep quality, insomnia. I have a hard time getting asleep, staying asleep. I'm up a lot. And of course, intrinsically, they tend to be more fatigued during the day. And it can be very challenging to differentiate fatigue, sleepiness. What does that really look like to a patient? You mentioned atrial fibrillation, and is this also of high enough association with sleep apnea such that when we see a patient with new AFib, we study them for sleep apnea? First of all, I'm going to go back for a second to central sleep apnea. What are the main risk factors for having central sleep apnea? Well, male gender, age over 65, atrial fibrillation, and reduced ejection fraction. All of those really significantly increase your risk that you're going to have central sleep apnea. Although as a whole, those with heart failure, if you had to guess, they're more likely than not to have some form of sleep apnea. With atrial fibrillation, there's no, no doubt that if you investigate that group of patients, there's a high percent, percentage of them that are going to have obstructive sleep apnea, some increased risk of central sleep apnea. But I think it's you know perhaps notable that the cardiologists at this point in their guidelines are recommending, certainly for those who you are cardioverting or you're doing any kind of ablation in, that they actually recommend proactive evaluation for sleep apnea and treatment if you can make that work. Well, Tim, you've given us a lot of information about complications of sleep apnea. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? I'd love to. So we're a training institution, so I often tell our fellows there's two main reasons to look for sleep apnea. One is symptoms, and we've talked about the symptoms of sleep apnea. You know, if you have a patient who's excessively sleepy, despite the fact that they're getting an adequate duration of sleep, if you have patients that are snoring, they, ha they have uh, other risk factors, uh, observed risk factors, you should really think about obstructive sleep apnea. And I think then the, the other group of individuals are those who have the cardiovascular risks. Um, the American Heart Association recommends screening for obstructive sleep apnea in those with resistant or poorly controlled hypertension, those with pulmonary hypertension, recurrent atrial fibrillation, cardioversion, ablation. We know the risk factors. Those are the people you should really look for obstructive sleep apnea in. Great. We've been discussing the complications of sleep apnea with Dr. Tim Morgenthaler from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine from the Mayo Clinic. Tim, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. It's a great discussion. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Daryl. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.